Good morning. My name is Wes, one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to be with you today. We're going to take some time that we do each week, look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 13. As you're turning there, I just want to, along with all these things we've been praying for and celebrating today, if you're not part of our prayer chain newsletter. I just want to celebrate and give thanks to God this morning for what we've heard this past week about uh, the release after seven years of Dr. Ken Elliott. Uh, I can still remember seven years ago at our winter retreat, uh, our friends Don and Akko coming in and telling us this horrible news that Dr. Elliott and his wife uh, working in Burkina Faso had been kidnapped by Islamic militants. Um, Jocelyn, his wife, was released sometime later, but these whole seven years We've been continuing to pray for Dr. Elliot that he'd be safe, alive, and also released. And we just learned this past week uh, that he has been freed. So, man, we can be just give thanks to God for that amazing news. If there was ever like a, a testimony of like what it means to continue in prayer and not give up, I mean, that's it. I mean, we've been doing that for seven years, and it's so awesome to see God's answer there. So wanted to highlight and just give thanks publicly for that. <clears throat> now, if you have found that passage, would you stand together and I'll read this passage. Matthew 23, beginning at verse 13. Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's God's word. You may be seated. <laughs> Let me pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this. A Spirit of God, would you just illumine the preaching of your word? Uh, we come to you with humble hearts, open to receive what you want to accomplish, and we believe as your word tells us, when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. Void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. <clears throat> well, after being forbidden, like really forbidden by our children to ever travel to New York City again without them, we uh, saved up our pennies and finally made our way to the Big Apple together as a family in July of 2019. Amazing trip. Loved it. Don't recommend traveling to New York in July, but still, it was still amazing. Uh, and also being lovers of Broadway shows, as we also were, and of the musical Hamilton in particular, we basically emptied our life savings and got four tickets to see the show on one of our last nights there. And man, Absolutely incredible night, worth every penny, remains hands down like one of my favorite shows on Broadway of all time. Uh, and if you didn't know, there's a little bit of a tradition of, of, a, of a sorts after you see a show on Broadway. If you like, you can go around the side of the theater to the stage door after the show, and very often, almost invariably, actors will come out, meet you, sign autographs, take pictures, whatever it is. Super cool that they do that. Uh, so we did that with the girls. They got to, you know, meet Hamilton and George Washington, and it was awesome. Super, super great time. But here's the thing. When the actors came out after the show, most of them not in costume anymore, but even the ones who had some pieces of the costume on, what they didn't do when they came out, not one of them, was 
look around in amazement at the expanse of New York City streets, uh, people dressed in modern 21st century clothing, as though they literally just stepped out of the 18th century into the 21st. Why? Well, because as believably as they'd played the parts on stage moments earlier, what every single one of them knew already was that they were actors. <laughs> they were actors portraying a part and not the historical characters that they'd just been portraying on stage, right? Which seems like that should be the most self-evident thing in the world, right? You're actors, like you get that. And yet, when you come to our passage today, in Matthew's gospel, you suddenly see that became the most offensive thing in the world when Jesus applied the same term to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You see there in verse 13 and 15, he calls them hypocrites. The Greek, hypocrites, which despite its decidedly negative connotation today, uh, and in a lot of ways, um, wasn't necessarily a negative term in Jesus' day. Simply just described, it was a Greek word that described an actor performing a part on a stage, or one who wears a mask. That's what it meant. So you see a play, you look up on the stage, you could say, look at all those hypocrites up there, and that wasn't weird. That, that's what the word meant. But, of course, if someone doesn't know or believe that they're playing a part, that is, they don't know that, that who they're presenting themselves to be to the rest of the world is not who they actually are, the term hypocrite becomes immediately offensive uh, as it calls into question their very identity. And this was very much the case uh, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, right? They didn't, they didn't see themselves as acting out a part, or anything like this. They saw themselves as the moral and spiritual exemplars of Israel. And so Jesus' words highly offensive to them. How can he say this to us? Now Jesus had already actually said very much the same thing to them much earlier here in chapter 23, which we looked at last week, where he had said to the surrounding crowds, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So he's already kind of said the same thing. Only now here, Jesus very much, he looks the teachers of the law and the Pharisees very much right in the eye. And he tells them in no uncertain terms, you guys are actors. You know that, right? You're, you're actors, clowns, playing a part. You're wearing a mask, uh, really the costume of religious and righteous people and, and righteousness that you don't actually possess which as pastor and author John Tyson rightly points out, when you understand the context uh, and the, the cultural dynamics at play when Jesus says this, you begin to understand why they crucified him. I mean, these are the most powerful, respected leaders in Israel at the time, and Jesus is calling their whole question, their, their whole organization into question. And yet so passionately committed is Jesus to bringing a right understanding of the kingdom that he came to inaugurate in his coming, as well as removing obstacles from any and all who would come. Apparently, Jesus understood this declaration, really this revelation, as something that still needed to be said and heard by both the surrounding crowds as well as the Pharisees themselves, even if it did cost him his life. So we'll see over the next few weeks here in this kind of series within a series, Jesus pronounces a series of seven woes over the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as a means by which the light of the world will work out this work of revelation or illumination. 
uh, removing masks, exposing both misguided teachings about God's kingdom, as well as revealing the true nature of the kingdom that he came to bring. So that's what I want to look at together. And we're going to actually look at, as you've seen here, the first two of Jesus' seven woes from our passage today together, as they both seem to be referring and focusing on this same subject. That is, gatekeeping in the kingdom of God, albeit the fact that they kind of focus on different aspects of that. So as we'll see here, the first woe is about keeping out those who want to enter the kingdom. Whereas the second woe is about those the Pharisees do see as worthy to enter, but who end up even further outside the kingdom than the Pharisees were themselves. That's what I want to look at together with you. And maybe you hear that and you think, okay, interesting. Um, what's that got to do with me? <laughs> I can't understand. I mean, is this just sort of a history lesson of what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Well, no. Um, the last thing I want to do here is just provide an opportunity for us to sit back with popcorn and a can of bubbly and just watch Jesus tear apart the Pharisees again, a nice show. Like, no, we want to look at this because when it comes to Jesus' church right up until today, the reality is that we are in no less danger of practicing this very same type of gatekeeping ourselves. Whether that's um, trying to like decide for God who's permitted to enter the kingdom and who's not, or presenting all kinds of theories, misguided applications of God's word that have nothing to do with what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Which means I want to study Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees because in many ways we're in no less danger of having these woes spoken over us today than the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. So we're going to spend some time looking at each one of these woes individually and how they kind of speak to or relate to kingdom gatekeeping. We'll, we'll talk, first of all, about shutting the door to the kingdom, and then we'll look about, to talk about being citizens of the wrong kingdom. So shutting the door to the kingdom, being citizens of the wrong kingdom. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, could you open it again to that passage, Matthew 23, beginning at verse 13? Follow along with me as Jesus calls out the hypocrisy, the, the mask wearing of the religious rulers of his day, and then warns against misguided teachings about the kingdom of God that come about as a result of that hypocrisy. Okay, so let's look first of all at shutting the door to the kingdom. Shutting the door to the kingdom. And where you see this is in the very first woe that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees against them and the teachers of the law in verse 13. Look with me there. Again, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. There's a number of things going on there, even in just a single verse. But before we go any further, I just want to pause for a moment anyways and just kind of get a working definition together of what that word woe means. I mean, I think we can get from the context and what Jesus says afterwards, it's, it's not a good thing. But like, what exactly is a woe and how is Jesus using this term in particular? Well, I think Leon Morris is helpful here when he describes a woe as both a verdict, that is, impending judgment or punishment, as well as an expression of sorrow and regret. It's both of these things. Okay. So Jesus, he's not exulting in this coming punishment that's coming, nor is he soft-pedaling the fact that it is, in fact, coming. It's a, it's, it's a verdict as well as an expression of sorrow and regret. Now, another example of this that might kind of flesh out the picture for you is seeing the, the woe that Jesus spoke over Judas 
when he revealed the fact that he was going to betray him at the Last Supper. And Jesus says to him, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, so we've got an expression of, there's a verdict, there's judgment for what's coming, but it's also an expression of sorrow and regret. That's a woe, and I think it's also worth maybe just a really quick refresher of who exactly these Pharisees that Jesus is speaking these seven woes over were as well. Who, who were the Pharisees? Well, again, very quickly, uh, in Jesus' day, there were four major groups that made up the kind of four sects, major sects of Judaism at the time. You had the Sadducees. These were basically the cultural and religious elite of the day. Uh, they came from the priestly line, and they very much were about cooperating with Rome in any way that they could in order to maintain their political and religious power. Then you had the Essenes, who, who despised the compromise of the Sadducees. Uh, they were very much separatists. They wanted to, like, we need to get out into the desert, out into the wilderness, get away from all the corruption. It's possible John the Baptist may have been associated with this group. You had the Zealots. These were the first or the third group who also hated Rome, very much wanted to see the kingdom of God come, but by any means possible, including violence, uh, revolts, assassinations, whatever it took in order to bring the kingdom here. And then, lastly, you had the Pharisees, who, as one commentator pointed out, he called them the more, the more thoughtful of the four groups. Uh, they set themselves up in every major town and village and held tremendous influence and sway among the people. Uh, in their view, the Roman occupation of Israel was very much a consequence of disobedience to the law of God. Uh, this was God's judgment because they'd failed to follow the law of God properly or fully or carefully enough. And so they practiced this very strict obedience to the law of Moses, as well as a number of laws that they placed around the law of Moses in order to make sure that that law was never broken. So very strict obedience. And then as the chief standard setters among the people of Israel, they sought to enforce obedience to the Mosaic law as well as their religious traditions among the Jewish people with the hope that God would see their obedience and turn in mercy and have favor on them again, that he would restore Israel to its former glory. I mean, you can say what you want about the Pharisees, but man, the heart and the rationale behind their strict obedience to the law, it truly had good intentions which the church today, I think, we could probably focus on and think about a lot more carefully than many of us often do. In fact, interesting, John Tyson, again, he points out that the beliefs of the Pharisees were most like those of the evangelical church today. He notes their belief was that the Messiah was coming. They believed in the entire Old Testament. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in a spiritual realm. He says, of all the people alive at Jesus' time, the Pharisees had a theology closest to Jesus' theology. And yet the people that he tend to fight with the most and argue with the most. Jesus has the most conflict with the Pharisees. And then later the Apostle Paul and the other apostles of the early church. These are the ones that tend to have the greatest conflict. And the reason was because of the way they applied that same theology. And they applied it in ways that distorted God's word, and then that also held their man-made traditions as being equal uh, as God's word and the law of Moses. They, these are the same in their view. As Tyson later adds, the greatest threat to the New Testament church was not immorality. It was this kind of legalistic oppression of God's people done in the name of God. 
But now understanding that background, hopefully it begins to help you get a little bit better grasp about how brash Jesus' public rebuke of the Pharisees' hypocrisy and distorted teaching truly was. I mean, look at this. To, to publicly denounce the established religious and moral authorities of the day as being hypocrites, actors just playing out a part on a stage that's not really true of them. And then look there saying, and, and you're not even part of this kingdom that you proclaim to be gatekeepers of? Wow, I mean, that's... That'd be like showing up at the height of Nazi Germany and calling out Nazi generals uh, publicly as uh, cowards and murderers. I mean, you're not wrong, but I hope you have a good life insurance policy. It's not going to be well received. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but then along with the audacity of Jesus' public rebuke of the Pharisees, it's also hard for me to understand like, how it is they're being hypocritical. In what way, I mean... If anyone was more committed to following the law of Moses, wasn't it these guys? Yeah, a thousand percent. They, they were the ones who did it and tried to make everybody else do it. So what could be hypocritical about their passionate desire to follow the law of God? Well, I think the answer for us uh, is in back in verse 5 of chapter 23, if you have that open. We looked at this last week. I'm not going to re-preach it. But just here, Jesus says very clearly, everything they do, this is the... Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Everything they do is done for people to see. Everything they do is done for people to see. Which means, and write this down if you're taking notes today, obedience to God's law is nowhere near as important to God in his eyes as why you're obeying God's law. Obedience to the law of God is nowhere near as important to him as why you're obeying it. Which is just to say, if being obedient to God's word is about you, is about you feeling really good about yourself and superior over other people who don't, then you're no longer being obedient to the word of God any longer. So do you see, do you see how that's the case? And do you see how that's the reason Jesus is calling the Pharisees hypocrites? He's not saying, oh, you guys say you follow, strictly follow the law of Moses and you don't. No, they did. They absolutely did. He's saying that their hypocrisy is that they presented themselves as the ones closest to God because of their strict obedience, when the reality is is that their hearts were damningly far from Him. But, and this is what I was getting at earlier, the thing that makes Jesus' words so offensive is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have no concept whatsoever of what Jesus is talking about. They can't see it at all. Right? They don't see the reality that at some imperceptible point in the past, obedience to God became about building the kingdom of self rather than building the kingdom of God. They, they don't even know what he's talking about. But then, look, do you see the reason Jesus calls out their hypocrisy publicly with these seven woes wasn't because he wanted to embarrass or humiliate the Pharisees. He's not even necessarily trying to change their minds. He's pronouncing these seven woes. He's calling out their hypocrisy because the tragic result of their hypocrisy was that it was not neutral. That is, it didn't just only affect them. It actually had eternal kingdom consequences to everyone around them who were looking to them as God's kingdom representatives as well. That's why he's publicly calling it out. And I think on one level we get this. That makes sense to most of us when we see hypocrisy in the church. People see, particularly in church leaders, it sours their opinion of both the church in general as well as kind of the validity of the Christian faith in particular. 
It's just to say it gives unnecessary justification to continue rejecting the God they already reject. They're just like, oh, okay, good, good. I, I knew Christianity wasn't true. I knew that was all garbage, but okay, now, now I can see. Right, yeah, it is. Some of you might be familiar already with a familiar, well-known saying, a quote from Brennan Manning, who wrote, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And sadly, I think there's far too many examples of hypocrisy, this kind of moral failure that we could list, even in the last few years, that give credence to Manning's words. I think that's a part of what Jesus is talking about here. But on another level, and this is where I want to just pause and really press in for a minute as to how all this relates to our own lives today. On another level, the way the hypocrisy of the Pharisees shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces was that they presented themselves as the God-ordained authorities of who was in the kingdom and who was out when they weren't. They presented themselves as trusted authorities to be respected and listened to when they weren't. Some of you might be familiar with a story from about a year ago. Where there was a woman charged who had fraudulently posed as a nurse at BC, Children, at BC Women's Hospital for over a year. I mean, can you just imagine the potential damage that could take place? Someone posing in a position of trusted authority when they had no training or authorization to treat patients? All kinds of potential damage to take place there. Well, transfer that now into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Just imagine the damage to the kingdom. Imagine the number of people shut out, turned away from the door after they'd felt drawn to know the God of Israel when those who'd falsely presented themselves as the judges of who was in and who was out told them, oh, no, no, sorry, you haven't X, Y, Z done these things? Or, or oh, sorry, you've done what before? Hmm, no, no, sorry. God's kingdom doesn't have a place for people or sinners like you. Unbelievable devastation to the kingdom. The problem is we can shake our heads at that. We can feel indignant about that and in so doing, ignore our own hypocrisy. As the church has practiced this kind of gatekeeping right up until this day in a thousand different ways. From, from the Middle Ages, when it was just like, oh, you don't believe that the Pope is God's sovereign anointed person to lead the church? You're not in the kingdom. Oh, you do believe the Pope is God's sovereign ordained ruler over the church? You're not in the kingdom. To our parents' generation, when it was, oh, you've been divorced before? Oh, you, I don't know, have long hair and no job? Probably not a place in the kingdom for someone like you. To even our own day and age, when it's like, you voted for Trump? Or, oh, you didn't vote for Trump? Um, I don't know, you don't dress in gender-typical ways? You're struggling with sexuality and worried you might be gay. Probably not a place in the kingdom of God for you. You'll have to look somewhere else. Sorry. Any, there's a thousand different things we could plug into that, that put a gate in the way of people from entering the kingdom, that shut the door in their faces from generation to generation to generation. We've continued to shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces in the exact same way that the Pharisees were doing. Or at best, we've said to people, yeah, there might be a place. There might be a place in the kingdom, but first, you're going to need to stop that. Uh, fix this, clean this up first, and then God might accept you. I wonder, do we feel the same sorrow and indignation against ourselves, against our own gatekeeping? 
Here's the thing. It's one thing to desire all people to come to repentance, as Peter clearly tells us God does. Amen and absolutely. But we risk shutting the door to the kingdom in people's faces ourselves when we forget that the apostles Paul replied to a convicted and convinced Philippian jailer who said to him, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Was simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. It means we need to be able to open the gate of the kingdom as wide as Jesus does. And if we're not, we're just as guilty of this woe as the Pharisees. Okay, so that's shutting the door to the kingdom. Last thing I want to look at together with you is what Jesus says about the way the Pharisees were working to create citizens of the wrong kingdom. Citizens of the wrong kingdom. You see this in verse 15 of our passage. Look with me here. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you succeeded... You make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Which, once again, again, maybe this is just me, it seems hard to understand at first, doesn't it? Because what could be wrong with teaching the scriptures, introducing people to the God of Israel? Uh, um, and, and how on earth is doing that, making people children of hell, as Jesus says? That feels like, like an overstatement, 100%. Well, to begin, some of you might be familiar with this saying. Whatever you catch people with, you save them to. You ever heard that before? Whatever you catch people with, you save them to. I think that's true to a large degree. And absolutely the reason I think Jesus says what he says to the Pharisees here in this second woe. Because when the Pharisees go to all this trouble, that's what Jesus means by traveling over land and sea. When you go to all this trouble to win a single convert to Judaism, what are they catching people with? Well, first of all, they're, they're teaching them the Word of God, no question, but teaching them the Word of God with a very particular bent, a very particular bias of the Word of God, which, as D.A. Carson rightly notes, locked them, these converts, into a theological framework that left no room for Jesus, the Messiah, and therefore no possibility of entering the Messianic kingdom. That's the first thing they're catching them with. Secondly, they're teaching these new converts their long list of man-made traditions set around the law of Moses as being equal to and on par with uh, God's word, which, again, however good intention these extra laws were, promised a means of earning one's acceptance into the kingdom, which could never save them any more than it saved the Pharisees themselves. That's what they were being caught with. Carson, again, summarizes their efforts well. He says, Whether the scribes and Pharisees were winning raw pagans or sympathizers of Judaism, they were winning them to their own position. The converts in view, therefore, are not converts to Judaism, but Pharisaism. It's different. It's a different thing. Do you see that? And do you see the devastating consequences of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees once again? And why Jesus describes their converts as being twice as much a child of hell as they are? For in imperceptibly making glorifying God by their obedience to the law into glorifying themselves by their obedience to the law, the people were converted not to being citizens of the kingdom, but being citizens of that kingdom of self, the kingdom of the Pharisees. That's what they were converted into. It's the wrong kingdom. And then even more devastatingly, in discipling their converts into a way of reading the scriptures that excluded Jesus as their fulfillment, they withheld the one hope for entering the kingdom of God available. 
and left them then thus doubly lost as the Pharisees were. Tim Keller, a giant of gospel influence in our world, certainly in my life, who went home to be with Jesus this past Friday morning, he put it this way. He said, there's a way of avoiding Jesus by being very, very bad, and there's a way of avoiding Jesus by being very, very good, whereby I believe I've earned God's acceptance and I'm in no need of his saving work. Leon Morris adds, it was the saddest of fates for a person who had evidently felt some attraction to the revelation God had made in the scriptures. And there is a consequent guilt in those who could and should have led them to a better, truly saving understanding. And as you think about what this means for your life and mine today, we've already talked about the way our kingdom gatekeeping can shut the door to the kingdom for people that Jesus is drawing in. But what we see here is that along with excluding people, our gatekeeping as a church can inadvertently invite people into a false assurance of kingdom citizenship that they don't actually possess. Where they become citizens not of the kingdom of God, but of the kingdom of self. That is like whatever you see as what God actually requires of people to be in his kingdom. Or I don't know, the kingdom of Dunbar Heights. Whatever it is. Not the kingdom of God, but a different kingdom. And the way that happened with the Pharisees was by excluding Jesus, the sole means of access into the kingdom of God from the equation. That's how they did it. They excluded Jesus from the equation. And the reality is that we can do the exact same thing ourselves. To which I have no doubt most of you or many of you would respond by saying, I haven't excluded Jesus at all from the equation. I know Jesus. I know he's the one that saved me. He's the one I tell people about. To which I'd say, awesome, great. Me too. And yet, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's at least two ways we can still exclude Jesus from the picture and create citizens of the wrong kingdom. One is what I'll simply call converting people to easy believism. This is where Jesus is presented as Savior only. Say that Jesus is the one who wants to uh, bless you, forgive you, celebrate you, and not also as the Lord who wants to transform every part of you and conform you more and more into his image and likeness. Far too many people have been presented with a gospel message that includes only half of Jesus. But do you see, to present only half of Jesus is to still exclude Jesus from the equation. Because that creates citizens not of the kingdom, but converts to a cheerleader Jesus who just wants to encourage you. He just wants to, he would never dream of saying anything that would ever offend you or challenge anything that you already believe about any other subject. It's not a citizen of the kingdom. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. The other way to exclude Jesus is converting people to a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus gospel, where citizenship in God's kingdom is about trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And church attendance. And using the right Bible translation, voting for the right political candidate. Um, In some cases, unquestioned obedience to church leaders. All kinds of things, on and on and on. Do you see, it's trusting in Jesus for our access to the kingdom and your individual efforts, whatever they might be. Trusting in both things. Which, hear me, it's not for a moment to say that striving for personal holiness isn't important to God. It is. It's just not the thing that earns your access into his kingdom. 
sad reality is that in the same way, presenting only half of Jesus excludes him from the equation, adding to Jesus excludes him from the equation as well. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. As we close this morning, I want to take that time that we always do each Sunday after the preaching of God's Word to just sit quietly and in silence and listen for the voice of the Spirit to speak to us about what it is He wants to say to us individually about what we've just looked at from His Word. I want to do that again with you now. For some of us, maybe where you'll feel the Spirit pressing on your heart is as it relates to Jesus' first woe. He will reveal individuals, maybe communities of people in your life who you've decided for God or can't be part of his kingdom, or at least not yet, forgetting that everyone, man, everyone from Zacchaeus to Saul of Tarsus to the man possessed with a legion of demons didn't alter a thing about their lives before being welcomed as citizens into the kingdom by Jesus. Their obedience was a result of their being citizens of the kingdom, not the cause of it. Because I said there's a positive element to the woes, right? The, the, the woe is telling us, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is a kingdom where the door is wide open for all to come. So maybe the Spirit will bring to mind some places where you haven't opened that door as widely as He has. For others, where maybe you'll feel the Spirit pressing on your heart, might be as it relates to the second woe, revealing either half-full presentations of Jesus or Jesus-plus presentations that leave us citizens of a different kingdom. Maybe those will be brought to mind. I mean, for myself, I know between these two woes, I'm definitely more tempted towards being caught by that second woe, where I, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm like gaining extra acceptance from God in the kingdom by my obedience or losing acceptance from Him because of my disobedience. I fall into that trap all the time. And maybe today, by God's grace, you'll see a complete vision of Jesus that will allow you to finally lay down all that stuff and just trust in the already completed work of Jesus alone. That's the second kind of positive aspect of this woe. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is a kingdom where entrance, the entrance fee has already been paid in full. And you're trying to make it seem like there's a way to earn your way in. That's what he's presenting here. Whatever it is, let's go together now to seek the Spirit's voice and leading. And my prayer is may he grant us faith to then walk into whatever he's calling us to. Let's do that together, and then in a moment we'll take communion together.